75 years ago today, at 6.55 in the morning, my paternal grandfather, the flight engineer on a B-24 Liberator, took off from Pantanella Field outside Canosa in southern Italy on his first combat mission. If he were still alive, my grandfather would be 99 years old. On July 25, 1944, he was 24 and the oldest member of his crew. B-24s were typically crewed by 10 men, pilot, co-pilot, navigator, bombardier, flight engineer, assistant engineer slash gunner, radio operator slash gunner, and four other gunners. The B-24J, a variant of the Liberator most in use during Grandpa's combat tour, was armed with 10 50 caliber machine guns, two each in the nose top, tail, and belly turrets, and one on each side of the waist. The target of the day for the 464th Bomb Group was the Hermann Goering Tank Works in Linz, Austria. Austrian targets, heavily defended, were among the most feared in all of the 15th Air Force's operational area. My grandfather's diary notes flak that day was heavy and intense. I admired and respected my grandfather. His service in the war shaped a large part of my own life. I was fortunate that all my grandparents were part of my childhood. We visited them, at least in my memory, regularly. I was incredibly lucky to get to know my grandfather as an adult. As a kid, I didn't ask many questions about his service in the war, and as I aged, I came to believe that such questions were somehow inappropriate. I missed the chance to ask Grandpa so many things I would like to know, so many things I didn't know to ask. He once told me, when we were driving together from southern Oregon north to see the Spruce Goose in McMinnville, that when he got home, no one asked the right questions. I asked him what the right questions would have been. Any question at all, he replied. I wish I'd asked more. The American generation that fought World War II are rapidly dying. Soon, as with all of history, there will be none left who lived and fought during the Second World War. In 2000, my father, brother, two uncles, and I attended the 464th Bomb Group reunion in Las Vegas. There were 23 men attending from my grandfather's squadron alone. Bomb groups in the 15th Air Force were typically made up of four squadrons, with 10 to 12 planes each, depending on losses and replacements. In the 464th, they were the 776th, 777th, which was my grandfather's unit, 778th, and 779th squadrons. There might have been 100 men from the entire group present. I recently looked up the 464th Bomb Group Association online. The 2012 reunion included only 14 men from the entire group. The 464th's 2013 reunion page is empty, and it's entirely possible, likely even, that none of my grandfather's comrades remain alive. Soon enough, there will be none left to tell their stories in person. Luckily, World War II has been documented in great detail by historians and by the men and women who took part. I say took part because they were a part of something. 
No one person's experience can equate to the whole, but the stories of the men who flew, who fought and died in the skies over Europe when the world hung in the balance. Those stories have similarities. They're part and parcel of that experience. I am not a historian. I haven't the training, the time, or frankly the mindset to engage in the exhaustive research that it would take to generate a historic work of my own. I am fortunate that others of that bent have done the work for me, combing through archives, checking first-hand accounts of missions against statistics, and then checking the sources of those statistics against other sources. I intend to rely on their expertise, their acumen, and their hard work. In doing so, I accept that I am going to be subject to whatever mistakes, whatever blind spots they brought to their work. So be it. My grandfather had a memory for dates and events. Fifty years on, a typical recounting of the events of his service would go something like, On the 2nd of January, 1942, I was alerted for overseas shipment. On the 4th, I left Camp Wallace, Texas, and went to New Orleans to await transportation. On January 8th, I was moved to the USS Kent for embarkation to some unknown destination. After six days at sea, I landed at Cologne in the Panama Canal Zone. On reflection, I think he made up in detail what he less often expressed in emotion. After recounting the journey from induction and training to assignment to the 15th Air Force, my grandfather wrote in his war diary, My position on the crew is engineer. In the air, I am just another gunner. However, if anything goes wrong with the ship, and it happens in such a place as to be accessible from the interior, then it's my duty to repair it. My first mission was on 25 July 1944. The target that day was Linz, Austria, where the Hermann Goering tank works were located. That was our target. We were briefed as to the number of flat guns to expect, the number of enemy fighters to watch for, and other pertinent data relating to the mission. We took off at 0655 that morning. After a very cold and otherwise uneventful journey, we arrived over the target at exactly 1135, dropped our bombs on the enemy, and began our rally to the left. From before the target, over the target, and for a short while after leaving the target, we were in heavy flak, intense, but not too accurate. The target was a virgin target, and on that day, the whole 15th Air Force attacked it. Our bomb load was five 1,000-pound bombs. The sky was filled with black puffs of smoke. Nothing that looked too dangerous, but it was. Those puffs of smoke were enemy flak shells bursting and throwing fragments of flying steel all around us. Fortunately, just two pieces hit us, and neither of them did any damage. There weren't any enemy fighters seen. We returned to our base seven hours and 15 minutes after we left. We landed at 1410. Since we were so far into enemy territory, the sortie counted as two missions. Now we are really a part of the squadron. We had our first mission completed and our baptism of fire. I think Grandpa came back from the war with guilt he didn't express. That of being an ordinary man who lived largely by no feet of his own, through a great deal of mayhem and violent death. At 20,000 feet over a target, 
flying straight and level on a bomb run, taking no evasive action, sweating out minute after eternal minute of flack, there is nothing to be done but endure. To live or die, depending on physics, utterly beyond your control. To have lived, knowing that other men, every bit as talented, every bit as dedicated, and every bit as worthy, died sudden and violent, or agonizing and terrorized deaths, for no other reason than being in the wrong place at the wrong time, I think left a mark on his soul. How could it not? When my grandpa turned 88, my father asked him, Dad, did you ever think you'd make it to 88? He said, John, I thought I wasn't going to make it to 25. Human memory's a funny thing. At the reunion in Las Vegas, my grandpa's crew had the most men in attendance. Seven. I got to meet each of them. When my brother and I were introduced to grandpa's co-pilot, Wally Roberts, he told us a story. They were on a mission and took flak hits in the hydraulic system. One of the lines was punctured and they were losing hydraulic power. A lot of systems on the B-24 relied on hydraulics. Nose turret, ball turret, landing gear. Wally told us that Grandpa took the bullet out of a 50 caliber round from one of the guns, pushed it into the hole in the hydraulic line, and wrapped it with safety wire. My granddad exclaimed, It wasn't a bullet. What was it? asked Roberts. It was a condom. I like to imagine Mr. Roberts had been telling that story for the better part of 50 years, about how his flight engineer had saved the plane one day with a 50 caliber bullet and some safety wire. Memory's a funny thing. I'm hoping, through this podcast, to tell some of the stories of the air war in Europe, to capture some small bit as ignorant as time and circumstance necessarily make me of what it was my grandfather was part of. I'm hoping to bridge the gap of memory, of time, of death. I'm hoping to know my grandfather as a stand-in for so many other grandfathers whose stories have been captured in some small measure by historians. I can only imagine the hurt and confusion over the losses he suffered in the war, of his friends, of his innocence. We are, after all, creatures of almost unbounded feeling, every one of us. I miss my grandpa, sometimes deeply. It's to him that this podcast is dedicated. Welcome to the air war in Europe. When the United States entered World War II after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the U.S. Army Air Force was nascent in the extreme. In 1941, it was little more than a collection of planes, men, and ideas. The First World War had seen the advent of military aviation. Fighter aces like Manfred von Richthofen, known as the Red Baron, Eddie Rickenbacker, and Roy Brown, were household names. Their exploits made them knights of the air in popular imagination, but in the final analysis did little to contribute to the outcome of the war. Ultimate victory was the province of the foot soldier. The advances in aviation technology, however, hinted at the incredible leaps made in the next world war, which in turn presaged the almost miraculous innovations especially in spin-off technologies of the post-war period. By the time Americans began fighting and dying in the skies over Europe, 
in the latter half of 1942, the British had been fighting for more than two years. Great Britain had witnessed, in the words of Winston Churchill, its finest hour. The Royal Air Force, RAF for short, had stood against the onslaught of the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, and had held. German troops had marched unstopped and seemingly unstoppable into the Soviet Union. To be finally halted after Soviet losses that defy understanding, only 12 miles from Moscow. In late summer 1942, Germans were near to launching their fateful attempt to seize Stalingrad. The high-water mark of Nazi expansion had come and would soon be gone, but there remained three more years of brutal bloodletting. The Soviets were pushing their allies in the West to invade the continent to relieve some of the pressure they faced from the massively lethal German war machine. The first efforts of that invasion would come in the form of high-altitude daylight bombing of strategic German targets. You may notice, if you're knowledgeable about the air war, that I left off the word precision. The Army Air Force's official doctrine was high-altitude precision daylight bombing of strategic targets. A claim floated around at the time that American planes could, quote, put a bomb in a pickle barrel from 10,000 feet. While this may have been nominally possible in the peacetime skies over practice ranges in Arizona or Utah, precision bombing would prove an elusive goal at best under combat conditions. The first elements of what would later become the 8th Air Force, the Mighty Eight, arrived in England in early May 1942. Though the 8th would become synonymous in public imagination with the four-engine B-17 Flying Fortress and the B-17 with the wider air war, the first 8th Air Force personnel to see combat did so in light bombers. A single American crew accompanied an RAF mission on June 29th but the first official combat mission undertaken by American airmen was flown on July 4th, picked as a fitting date for the inaugural sortie. Six American crews, flying Douglas DB-7 Boston IIs, known in the American inventory as the A-20 Havoc, joined six RAF crews from No. 226 Squadron on load-level attacks against four German airfields in the Netherlands. Attacking at treetop level over the German airfield at Decoy, Captain Charles Kegelman's Boston took a direct hit in the starboard engine and the propeller was blown off. As he struggled for control, one of his wingtips scraped the ground, but Kegelman managed to recover and badly damaged, with one engine out and multiple holes in the plane, made it back to England. For his efforts, he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. In the end, Three planes were lost over the targets. Two of the six American crews were shot down by anti-aircraft defenses. Fliegerabwehrkanone in the German, called Flak by U.S. airmen and Akak by the British. One British Boston was shot down by a fighter that managed to take off as the attacks commenced. Gerald Astor, in his book The Mighty Eighth, The Air War in Europe is Told by the Men Who Fought It, quotes Marshall Draper, the then 23-year-old bombardier of one of the American Bostons. Quote, the flight took off, formed up, and we headed east at a height of about 50 feet above the water toward Holland. 
About 10 miles from the target, we passed a couple of small boats, which appeared to be fishing craft, but were picket boats, called squealers by the RAF, whose function was to alert the shore-based anti-aircraft defenses, as we soon discovered. A few moments later, we were approaching a seawall on the shore when heavy flak opened up. Tracers were going by and above the plane on both sides of my head, like flaming grapefruit. This kind of situation concentrates the mind wonderfully, and everything went into slow motion. I could not see why we weren't getting hit, but we cleared the seawall, and I felt the plane lift as we let the bombs go. We immediately turned left to get out and came face to face with a flak battery. The four wing guns were firing, but we were so close the fire was converging beyond the battery. I glanced at the airspeed indicator, which registered 285 miles per hour, and suddenly realized that the battery gunner was shooting directly at me. We were getting ripped right up the middle as we passed over, about two feet above the gunner's head. Bill O'Dell, an American pilot of another Boston and Draper's flight, recounts, All came back except Laurel, Lynn, and a Britisher named Henning. Laurel was hit by a heavy shell and hit the ground right in the middle of the aerodrome. He flew into a million pieces, one of the rear gunners said. Lynn was following before the flight hit the target, but never came away from it. His wife is to have a baby in November. Henning was shot down by an ME-109 that took off just ahead of him. He tried to get it, but it turned, got behind him, and set one motor on fire. He crashed into the sea. Keg got his right prop and nose section shot off by heavy stuff right over the target. His wing dropped, hit the ground, and he managed to right it and come home on one motor. He continues his narrative. I woke up lying on my back at the bottom of the North Sea in about 20 feet of water, very confused about where I was or what I was doing there. I thought I was dead and kept waiting in the gray gloom for something to happen. Then I thought, maybe I'd better look for someone. I sat up and saw my breath bubbling up through the water and finally realized I was submerged. When I surfaced, I was opposite a small beach under the seawall and on about a 60-degree tangent with the tail of the A-20 protruding from the water, which was all that was visible of the plane. Various subsequent reports had us crashing in flames or disintegrating, but I saw no smoke or signs of fire associated with the plane and no debris. However, for me to be vectored nearly sideways of the plane, which appeared pointed to the west, I must have been subjected to a very powerful force. I swam ashore, walked a few feet from the water's edge and sat down, suddenly overcome with an enormous fatigue. Somehow I had been taken right out of my parachute harness and flotation vest, and my uniform was ripped to shreds. Also, I was bleeding from an assortment of places. A path led up from the beach to the seawall, and I could see several soldiers at the top of the path, but they made no effort to come down. So I sat and rested for a time. After a while, my mental tiles had clattered back into place, and it occurred to me that I might be better off starting up the path than sitting on the beach bleeding like a stabbed hog. I got to my feet with some difficulty, trudged across the little beach, and started up the rather steep path. 
To my astonishment, the soldiers came rushing down the path and grabbed me by the arms. They were mumbling, meinen, meinen, as if to excuse some perceived lack of hospitality in not coming to my assistance. The beach had been mined, presumably by the Dutch before the Germans got there. The next thing I remember, I was lying on a table in what appeared to be a first aid room. The cast had changed from the Wehrmacht, the German army, to three Luftwaffe types, one of whom was holding my eyelid up and looking at my eye with a little flashlight. He straightened up, turned off the flashlight, and announced to the room at large, Shock! Then he asked me, Have you lost many blood? I corrected him, That's much blood. You mean much blood. I don't know. Draper would hold the dubious distinction of being the first American airman in Europe to become a prisoner of war. Though the July 4th mission clearly had PR value, a loss rate of 25% made it an undeniable and unsustainable fiasco. The next American crewed mission was flown at 8,500 feet to minimize exposure to flak. There were no losses. These American airmen's baptism by fire foretold the trials to come, and the early days of the American involvement in the air war were fraught with costly, bloody lessons. 